The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. It was long awaited and highly anticipated, but a fiery debate continues about what the Mueller report actually said. On April 30th, the Washington Post sat down with Representative Adam Schiff and Representative Mark Meadows and some of the top Post journalists who have been covering the story for the last two years. The Washington Post has used its vast resources to cover every angle of the Mueller investigation. In this segment, a panel of our top reporters on the Mueller beat provide a roadmap on how Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election began, how the president and his top advisors responded, and the ongoing legal and political implications that have gripped Washington for the past two years. Let's listen. Good morning. Great to be with you. My name is Matea Gold. I'm the National Political Investigations Editor here at The Post, and I've had the privilege of leading our coverage of the Mueller investigation along with National Security Editor Peter Finn. And I am delighted to be joined this morning by four reporters who make up the tremendous team of journalists who've been covering this story from the very beginning. Uh, Devlin Barrett, who writes about national security and law enforcement. Ellen Nakashima, who covers national security. Matt Zapotowski, who covers the Justice Department, and Roz Helderman, a political investigations reporter. Before we begin, I'd like to let the audience here and everyone watching online know you can tweet your questions using the hashtag PostLive, and I'll try to get to some of them later on. So it's appropriate that we're gathered here in this kind of forum and conversation because those of us here on stage, along with a much larger team of Post journalists, have been part of a running conversation in the newsroom for the last two years and even longer. And together, we've been trying to figure out really the contours and the scope of the Mueller probe, as well as the extent and the nature of the ties between Russia and the Trump campaign. Every other day, we would meet about 11 o'clock inside what we jokingly referred to as our SCIF, our secure facility which was essentially a conference room with no windows that Marty Barron set aside for those of us who've been covering this story. And I wish I could share with you some of those conversations from that room, but I'll tell you they've been uh, eye-popping to say the least. Um, hopefully this discussion here today will give you a sense of the deep sourcing and incredible authority that these reporters have brought to this story. It's been such a privilege to be an editor on this long-running um, storyline. I think it's also worth noting that we should take a moment and appreciate how much the public, and hopefully all of you as Post subscribers, have already learned or even learned before the Mueller report's release about Russia's interference in the 2016 campaign, about the ties between the campaign and Russia, and about the president's actions in office, thanks to rigorous independent reporting that we do here at The Post and that other news outlets have been doing as well. So I want to start our conversation with Ellen, because you were there um, at the very beginning at a key moment. Uh, let's start in June 2016. It was about a month before Donald Trump would become the GOP presidential nominee. And you broke the story that the DNC would be hacked. And here is the lead of that story. Russian government hackers penetrated the computer network of the Democratic National Committee and gained access to the entire database of opposition research on GOP presidential candidate Donald Trump, 
according to committee officials and security experts who responded to the breach. Take us back to that moment and what you made of it at the time. And, and did you have any inkling it was part of a broader campaign? No, in fact, it's, it's really interesting to think back two and a half years. Um, and at that time, we didn't know Russian interference. That wasn't in the lexicon. Today, it's sort of like almost an accepted notion. But going back two and a half years, um, and I was covering cyber and national security, I'll, I'll talk to you about how, how I came upon the story. One of my longtime sources called me up one day and said, Ellen, I have a story for you that I think you're going to be very interested in. It's right up your alley, i.e. cyber, national security, and I can talk to you in about a couple of days if, you, if you'll be available. And I said, well, sure, but tell me a little bit more about it. What's, how, how big a deal? He said, oh, it's going to be a big deal. It's, it's a <laughs> national story. And so I pressed him a little. I said, well, it's that big a deal. It's got to have something to do with either politics, sex, or corruption. And he said, well, maybe one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a couple of days later, I went to his office, Michael Sussman, who is a lawyer at Perkins Coie, covers national security, just a few blocks from the post. And in his conference room, he had Amy Dacey, who was the executive director of the Democratic National Committee, um, Sean Henry, then the, uh, he's the president of CrowdStrike, a major cybersecurity forensics firm, and Dmitry Alperovich, who's the co-founder of, of CrowdStrike and also uh, a major uh, cyber expert. And they proceeded to walk me through an incredible tale of how they discovered that Russian government spies, hackers, had penetrated the computer networks of the DNC just um, a couple of months earlier. And in fact, there were two competing Russian spy agencies that had both hacked the DNC and had gotten hold of the entire trove, for instance, of this one uh, spy agency did of the Trump opposition research. And so back at that point in time in June, we were, this was a huge story, you know, another a break in at the DNC, only this time through cyber means. But we thought it was traditional espionage, that the Russians were after information about the next potential president of the United States, be it Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, who can be a Democrat. Um, and no thought that, you know, that, that it was going to be anything but that. And then about a month later, in J July 22nd, WikiLeaks dumps 22,000 DNC emails out onto the internet. And instantly, I realized that this was no longer just traditional espionage. This, this whole thing had moved into a different sphere. It was information warfare. And we started to get, I and some colleagues started to get a better sense that there's something else going on here. The Russians were not content just to steal information. They were actually trying, in this case, to throw some uh, spanners in the works at the DNC convent, the Democratic National Committee convention, interfere in the democratic process. And that started sort of what, in the following months, we would come to see more um, evidence of Russians' interference in the election to include even up to Vladimir Putin himself. So this is just to say that uh, at that point in time, that was just the first sort of tip of the iceberg of what would become several years worth of really digging into a widespread and what Robert Mueller has called systematic campaign of interference in the 2016 election. 
And meanwhile, Roz, you and Tom Hamburger were already, at the time, chasing stories about Trump's ties to Russia. In fact, three days after Ellen's scoop, you, Tom, and Michael Birnbaum published a story under the headline, Inside Trump's Financial Ties to Russia and His Unusual Flattery of Vladimir Putin. So walk us through some of that early reporting, and what did you make of what you were finding at the time? Yeah, so in the sort of spring of 2016, uh, Tom and I started talking to a number of people about two interesting things involving Donald Trump. One was Trump himself. Um, by that time, he had already begun this sort of weird back and forth publicly with Vladimir Putin, sort of praising Putin as a, as a strong leader, and Putin was sort of praising Donald Trump back, calling him a colorful personality. And, you know, you have to think back to the context of the Republican primary campaign. That was incredibly unusual at the time. You know, in 2012, Mitt Romney, the Republican nominee, had said that Russia was our uh, great, greatest geopolitical foe. And that was much more in line with what other leading Republican figures were saying, like Jeb Bush on the campaign trail, Ted Cruz. And so to have a candidate who was so sort of open to Russia was really interesting to us. So we started looking a little bit at the financial history and started learning about this long history of Donald Trump's attempts to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, dating back to the late 1980s. We found a court deposition uh, where he had talked about how he had promised one day they would be, the Trump Organization would be in Moscow. Um, and so we actually sent Michael Birnbaum, who was our Moscow correspondent at the time, to talk to the Agalarovs, Aras and Emin Agalarov. Uh, they're the folks who we later come to learn set up the famous Trump Tower meeting. But Michael spoke to them in April of 2016. Before so that meeting even happened. Yeah. Months before that meeting yeah. even happened. Had this long conversation with them at uh, Nobu, the uh, Japanese restaurant which they own in the Crocus City Mall in Moscow, all about their love of Donald Trump and uh, why they thought Trump's election would be good for Russia, about how they had been sending Trump uh, congratulatory notes, like on Super Tuesday, the Aguilarovs had sent him a note. Uh, so we started looking into that, and then we also started looking into the people he was surrounding himself with, people like Paul Manafort, who had a long history in the re region, Carter Page, Michael Flynn, all these figures who we later came to learn so much more about um, were all in that original story that you mentioned. Um, uh, and the funny thing is that story was um, basically in the can. We were doing sort of some final edits on it when we heard that Ellen was going to be breaking this story about the Russian government hackers penetrating the DNC. And at the time, it was just, it was weird. We just <laughs> didn't know what to think of that. Like, how amazing. We're doing this whole story about how Trump has this weird flattery with Russia, and now the Russians have hacked the DNC. And you know, it was just very puzzling. And I think it took us a very, a very long time, really, to understand uh, how those two things uh, might connect or not connect. I mean, really, only until the, the report just came out. Yeah. Devin, let's talk a little bit about the investigation. We know now that it began in July 2016 very quietly. Um, it wasn't until March 2017, a couple months after Trump's inauguration, that Comey publicly confirms it. Um, by early May, he's fired. By June, we're reporting that the president himself is under investigation for obstruction of justice. Walk us through those months and really what we've now learned about what was happening behind the scenes and the role our own coverage actually ended up playing in part of the investigation. Right. So obviously the, the investigation was, was kept under wraps for a long time during the campaign and then after the campaign mostly through source reporting it became clear that there was this investigation of some Trump campaign officials and associates. 
Um, there was a big moment in March when uh, then FBI Director Jim Comey says, yes, in fact, we are investigating some associates of the Trump campaign. Um, and just saying that publicly, even though at that point, like everyone had sort of understood that to be the case by that point. But I think it did mark a, a real turning point in the sense of it is now publicly acknowledged. Comey has said this to Congress. And you see the relationship really deteriorate between him and the president like dramatically after that. And part of the reason why is because Trump kept demanding that uh, Comey say publicly that he, Trump himself, was not personally under investigation. That was very important to the president through this time period, and Comey would not do that. So Comey gets fired, um, and then in June we write a story saying that, yes, in fact, the president is under investigation um, for obstruction. And obviously that's a big step. We didn't, you know, that took a lot of reporting to get us to that step. Um, but what was interesting about that moment was that after that happened, and the Mueller report really lays this out in a way that was, frankly, a little eye-opening to me, yeah. um, how much Trump's own behavior changed after that story. Because what the report describes is the president's, the worrisome behavior that had opened the, that had caused the investigation to be opened escalates rapidly once Trump knows, sort of officially, that he is in fact under investigation. It's a little weird to sort of wonder, okay, so if you're told you're under investigation for obstruction, would you immediately then run out and try to do like three or four potential, potentially obstructive <laughs> acts? Um, that's maybe not the way a lot of people would react to that news, but that is the way the president reacted to that news. And so the Mueller report really divides um, the obstruction report into two sections. One, the section of events that happened before that story, and two, the, the events that happened after that story. And they make the argument that the concerning behavior gets worse after the story. Again, uh, an, an, a pretty odd uh, yeah. human behavior moment. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of covering the special counsel investigation as a beat? Um, to say this was a lockdown shop is sort of an understatement and a real rarity in this town, right? So we were, despite that, able to break some stories about some very early sensitive aspects of the investigation. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so Mueller's team, as everyone knows by now, uh, doesn't leak, doesn't talk. And, you know, that's not like me up here trying to protect anyone. That's true. Um, and that makes covering the investigation very, very difficult. Covering any investigation is very, very difficult. The Justice Department, the FBI, they generally don't want to talk about the work that they're doing, certainly not work that the grand jury is considering or sort of sensitive, sensitive work. Um, so it was tough, uh, but we managed to make some inroads that I can't really talk about um, to people who know about this kind of thing. And in the early days when there's this mad scramble to figure out, well, what exactly is Mueller looking at? I mean, when Mueller is appointed, we just have this four kind of bullet point letter from Rod Rosenstein saying, well, they're investigating coordination and any matters that might arise from that. And we're like, well, what, what are those? And like, what counts under the umbrella of coordination. At that point, we have all these different strands that we know about. We know that Paul Manafort is of interest to the team. We know that Michael Flynn is of significant interest to the team because of 
his apparently lying to the vice president. Um, you know, we have all these strands, but it's like, what is Mueller most focused on? So in some of those early days, and this will kind of give everyone a sense of the backstory of the obstruction, I, Devlin gets a tip about the investigation kind of reaching into the White House and into top levels of the White House for the first time. And we didn't really know that. We knew they're investigating Russian interference, right, and possible coordination, but we didn't know of any kind of current hooks to the White House. So Devlin gets a tip on that. I run out to some sources um, and we're able to sort of confirm, hey, they're looking at Jared Kushner and particularly these meetings he had with a Russian banker in December, kind of during the transition period. Jared Kushner and this Russian banker had kind of given conflicting public accounts of what this meeting was about, whether it was diplomacy, whether it was business, whether it was both. Robert Mueller's report really lays out how there was this blend, not just with Kushner, but with a lot of people of finances and diplomacy and how that was a, a great subject of interest. So, um, but we had this better tip that the president himself was under investigation for obstructing the investigation. But, you know, if you're going to report that, you really, really have to nail it down. <laughs> so we do the Kushner stories, a couple of them. I think first we don't even identify Kushner because right. if you're going to come at the president's son-in-law, you really, really have to nail it down. Um, there's a lot of drama with his people, with the Post. Um, it was a whole big thing. Uh, <laughs> and then, but it's because of that that we're sort of able to get the break that, hey, the president is under obstruction. It's like one story leads to another story leads to another story. More people are kind of willing to talk. You shake loose a few things. So, but it's, even from that point, it has been a challenge because they don't, they just don't talk. They don't tell you, you're wrong, you're off base here, this is slightly wrong. They just don't talk. That has led to some of our competitors being hugely embarrassed. I think for the most part, we have, we have stayed on the, on the straight and narrow because we have really good sources, but it's been very, very difficult, though that was a, a success moment early on. That idea of using one story to build off another was really key in the Flynn coverage too, right, Ellen? I mean, can you talk a little bit about how we chased that story and what we learned from the report that we didn't know? Well, that was one of the first stories uh, that the Post did, that really any major paper did um, on, around this whole investigation. And, and as Matt alluded to, Matt said that, um, you know, uh, the FBI and then later Mueller was interested in Flynn for his, uh, for lying to the FBI. And, and that kind of laid the groundwork also for potential um, looks at obstruction by the president for trying to get rid of that investigation. But the way we got to it was, uh, going back to, this is now during still the transition of January of 2017, and one of our colleagues, David Ignatius, who's a, a preeminent uh, national security columnist here, he wrote a column that mentioned down at the bottom that um, Michael Flynn, who's Trump's, in, at the point, incoming national security advisor, had had convers several conversations with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, on December 29th, which was the day that the Obama administration, the outgoing Obama administration, had expelled 35 Russian um, officials and imposed sanctions on Russia in, in response to their interference in the 2016 election. The big question was, did this question of sanctions arise in that call? Did, did, uh, uh, did Flynn make any, say anything about sanctions or possibly list, lifting them to uh, Kislyak? And, Right after that uh, report surfaced, Sean Spicer, who was then the transition campaign spokesman and would later become White House spokesman, 
told reporters publicly, oh no, it was, a, it was just a phone call to talk about uh, to Christmas greetings and set up a presidential phone call between um, uh, Putin and, and Trump. And the issue of sanctions never arose. And then the vice president, Mike Pence, went on t Sunday morning TV and said, yes, uh, Flynn personally assured me that the issue of sanctions never arose. Well, after that, uh, me, uh, a couple of other colleagues, Greg Miller and Adam Entis, started to get wind from our sources that, in fact, that there's something not right about all of that, about the reporting. And we were, as Roz mentioned, very interested in connections between Russian officials and the Trump administration, Trump campaign. So we were starting to, to run that down when um, we got, Adam actually got a breakthrough. He went to coffee with a source, and he had his typed list of 10 questions he wanted to put to his source, and a copy of the Logan Act, which was this 1799 law that's never been prosecuted, but that criminalizes any unauthorized person negotiating with a foreign government that's in a dispute with the United States. And he had been told by a source that this was key. And the source he had coffee with said, this is really the key to understanding this. And you should know that the statement by Mike Pence that the subject of expulsions of diplomats never came up with uh, Kislyak is just flat out untrue. That was the, the sort of the breakthrough moment that Adam understood, okay, Kislyak was being monitored by uh, US intelligence. He's a, a Russian diplomat. Intelligence usually keeps tabs on what um, foreign diplomats are saying and picked up phone calls between Kislyak and, and Flynn. And from there, we, we started to understand that he probably spoke about sanctions on, on the call, and we started to try to confirm that, uh, Greg and I, through, through sources, as well as Adam. And we were able to uh, eventually get to the point where we did. Uh, another colleague took it to, to Flynn in the White House at that point, now the new national security advisor, and he outright flat out denied it. Um, we were prepared to write a story about it and include his denials. And once we, when we heard that he was just flat out denying it, we decided to hold off for a night to, to really lock down our sources. We talked to Marty Barron, the executive editor. We, told, we went over all of our uh, reporting. We counted nine current and former officials who gave us confirmation that indeed uh, the subject of sanctions had arisen and we decided to run the story. We went back to the White House, told the National Security Council spokesman we were going with the story, and he said, well, actually, uh, Flynn wants to withdraw his denial and, and now say that perhaps uh, he can't recall whether the subject ever came up. <laughs> and so we included that, uh, his denial and then that statement in the uh, story. And uh, in December of 2017, Flynn pled guilty to lying to the FBI, and I guess he's still awaiting sentencing? Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, Roz, you spent much of your time during this investigation examining the ties and connections between Russians and the Trump campaign. What did we learn from the Mueller report that filled out that picture that was revelatory? Yeah, so the Mueller report went deep on uh, some of the episodes that we already knew about. The Trump Tower meeting, for instance, got a good description of everything that led up to it and everything that followed it. Uh, and then we learned some additional moments of contact that we didn't 
No, you know, it's interesting when you go back to the election, I think maybe two days after the election, there was this story that didn't get a ton of attention at the time where a Russian government official gave an interview in Russia and said that, you know, members of the Trump entourage had been in contact with the Russian government during the campaign. Uh, and he sort of tried to walk that back sort of quickly. Uh, but meanwhile, Hope Hicks, uh, who was the communications director at the time, came out and said, absolutely not. Nothing like that happened. There were no contacts between Russians and the campaign at any point in time. So as soon as she said that, the sort of chase was kind of on to see, well, she says there were none. Were there any? And what we learned through uh, a, you know, a long span of reporting and then really punctuated by the report is there were tons, really tons of contacts. Uh, and what you get this picture of is, you know, the Mueller team concluded that none of those um, could be proven to show a criminal conspiracy be between the campaign and the uh, particular efforts they identified as the Russian government efforts to interfere in the election. But you get this picture of a campaign that was interested uh, in Russian help, intrigued by it, uh, in some cases welcoming to it, and even in the cases where uh, they declined it or uh, through happenstance sort of didn't connect, uh, were not disturbed by it. Um, you know, while these hacks were happening publicly, information being spilled on the internet, uh, nobody went to the FBI to say, you know, we've been getting these inquiries from Russia and maybe that's something that the FBI should be taking a look at. Hmm. Devlin, um, the political reaction to this investigation has been sharply polarized, to say the least. Um, I think one powerful ex example was a response to the story we did in spring of 2017, that months earlier the FBI had obtained the surveillance warrant on Carter Page, a former Trump campaign advisor. Talk a little bit about how that informed that political debate. Right, so that's one that Ellen and I did and uh, with, with Adam, and uh, that was a wild one because uh, it took a long time to figure out, but once we got it out there, it, you know, the, pu the public reaction at first was, oh my God, they were surveilling a, a former Trump campaign official. This must be a very serious investigation. This must, you know, a lot of times I think when the public hears about an investigation, they think, oh, there must be something terrible there. Um, and that was certainly a part of the reaction. But the immediate counter reaction to that politically was, oh my God, this just shows how terrible the FBI is and how, uh, you know, they're spying on a campaign. You know, politically, both sides loved that story in a way that was a little disconcerting because both sides took only the part of it, they, they took the meaning from it only that confirmed what they already viewed of the situation. And so that FISA, that, that surveillance warrant, um, has become this weird sort of like divergence point in the political debate about all this stuff because each side views it completely differently than the other, and they both think it proves their point. Yeah, which previewed sort of what would follow, right? right. Um, we're running out of time, but Matt, I'll give you the last question on this, which is appropriate. Fast forward to April 18th, right? Um, Mueller's report is finally released after 22 months. We had a huge team assembled. Talk a little bit about how we covered it that day and also produced a, a book that you can get <laughs> on your way out. I've been told to tell everybody. Um, <laughs> An excellent book in that night. So uh, yeah, the report I think came out around 11 a.m. and um, we have a lot of things to do. Right, one is read the report. Uh, <laughs> two is like write stories. And for me and Roz, three is like put the finishing touches on some of the introduction and annotation material we did for the book, which is literally like republishing the Mueller report with a lot of our added materials. So initially, me and Devlin. 
um, are kind of sitting next to each other uh, and reading big copies of the report. And I started with collu the collusion, volume one. He got the kind of more exciting one, obstruction. <laughs> um, and looking for, I mean, in today's environment, right, people want the news right now. So it's not like we, we knew we didn't have time to sort of spend six hours, calmly go through the report, all sit down together and talk about like, well, I think this is the lead. Like we were, we were reading executive summaries and looking for big questions that we knew, you know, we hoped the report would answer. We had like Bill Barr's top line conclusions at that point, but um, we, we didn't know, for example, like why didn't they subpoena the president? That was a big question we had. Like we know that Mueller didn't come to a conclusion on obstruction. Well, why does he explain that in the report? So we kind of dive in looking for specific questions to answer to, um, so we can send out news alerts so people get to their phone. Oh, they didn't subpoena the president for this reason. Oh, this is what it says on obstruction. And contribute to the story. Um, then I kind of got back to the office and me and um, uh, I had been at Justice because Bill Barr had a press conference earlier that day. Um, and me and Roz had book-related stuff. So I also found out that I thought I had four hours to like file mm -hmm. my book stuff, but in fact, we only had four hours to be like edited, lawyered, everything, which makes sense because the book came out, like the ebook I think came out three o'clock the next morning, which is a testament to our publishers, not, not to us. But um, uh, so then, you know, put the finishing touches on an introduction. Our introduction sort of sought to set the scene. We knew a lot in advance, right? We've been covering the story. You can see throughout the report how much Mueller cites reporting. And it's almost amazing how how reporters, even if they were a step behind Mueller, they kind of figured out every, a lot of what he knew. Um, so we had much pre-written, put the finishing touches on, and we you know, contributed to a story. At the end of the day, I had to pivot to another story, but wrote several <laughs> stories. I think we probably all had an assignment up here, and um, that's how we did it. Well, thank you. It was incredibly exciting to be in the newsroom that day and see these folks and their colleagues in action. I want to thank the panel so much. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Um, Thank you to the audience. You can indeed purchase uh, the Mueller report outside. And for a, re for a full recap of this morning's program, follow us at WashingtonPostLive.com. Please join us this Thursday morning for a new series about the 116th Congress, where the special guest will be House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.